Well, as those kids make their way out, we're looking forward to that Christmas program in a few weeks. By the way, that will be a lot of fun. If you know your kids, imagine them with the other kids that you know, and then, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun for sure. I'm going to tell you from the jump, I'm going to give you the best that I can this morning. And I want to give you uh, an opportunity to see who God is through Christ and to encourage you to encourage one another this morning. Uh, My heart is with my friend, my best friend. And my heart is that you can also see who God is in this time. So I want to tell you, I'm going to give you the best that I've got to point us in the right direction. It was a couple of years ago when I made what could be potentially called a foolish decision to decide to move from being a casual bicycle rider, bike rider, to trying to get into the world of bike racing. It was the end of one year and I had started to ride bike and we started that around here, um, a fundraiser in which I was required to ride 62 miles on a bike and I had never gone that far in my life. Felt like I needed to do that because I was supporting the mission work that it was you know, supporting. So that year I had to ride 62 miles on an event and I did that. And then at the end of that year I thought, what if no longer the distance is a challenge? What if it's no longer how far can I go, but what if it's how fast I can go? And then I began to train for bike racing to see what would happen. In that off season, I thought, all right, as long as I train harder than anybody else, then I should be fine. And in that training season, during the winter months, I would go out and I would basically beat myself up, put myself in, as cyclists call it, the pain cave, where my breathing was gone. I couldn't even say a word, and the, the lactic acid was building up in my legs to the point where I felt like I was about to vomit after sprint intervals and hill repeats and that type of thing, just kind of beating my body into that submission of this is what training for racing looks like. So in that course of that several-month period of try, tr- trying to transition into that that world. Um, toward the end of that, I invited a friend of mine who had been a, a racer before to ride with me up um, some hills because we, in training for racing, you do hill repeats. For example, you ride up hills, up and down, up and down. I call them downhill repeats because that is more fun. You get to go down the hill that you just climbed up and people are more interested in that. And that's a lot more fun to go downhill, but you do have to go up the hill. And so in that course of time, I invited him to come ride with me and we rode up one mile long hill near my house and I set a strong pace and he rode right behind me on my wheel the whole way up and I was, I was working hard. And we went down the other side and by the way, going downhill on a bicycle, I don't think there's another vehicle that goes faster around the corners. Even you motorcyclists, I want to tell you, we go faster than you downhill, so take that, all right? Um, uh, but we, we went down, that was great, and then we came back up, and um, as we were coming back up, again, I was setting that pace, uh, working hard, and I was at the limits of where I traditionally stop, and I cracked about two-thirds of the way up the hill. All of a sudden, you hit that proverbial wall, the lactic acid was building up, the pain was too much, and my brain said, shut it off. Like, you're done. You've just reached that limit. And that was the point where I would stop in my training because that's the end of what I have to give. I've given it all. To which my friend kept riding right past me. He didn't care if I was stopping. He's like, fine, you stop. I'm going to keep going. To which then something immediately clicked in my brain. And I'm like, I'm not going to let that happen. Right? And then all of a sudden, my brain overrode my body and I went further than I ever had before because my friend made me. And I pushed it further and I got to, the cyclist would say, I got on his wheel, I got right back behind him again, and I went up that hill faster than I've ever done in training on my own. Even though in training on my own, I would tell you when I came back, I gave it everything I had. And then my friend comes with me, I realize I was wrong. And here's what I realized in that moment, that, that I, 
consistently stop short of my true limits when I don't have friends pushing me. That I consistently stop short of what are my true limits when I don't have friends pushing me. This is a troubling reality for me because I think it's true for us across the board, whether it's your organizational life, your personal life, your life as students, that there are certain limits we think we have that we are sure are our limits. I can't go any faster on this dumb bike. That's what I believed on my own. And then all of a sudden my friend showed me, no, I'm going to leave you if you don't come with me. And something else clicked in me to go. And you know exactly what that is. It's when you turn in that paper to your teacher and they say, listen, it's good. And I know you think this is the best draft you have. I'm going to give it back to you because I think you can do more. Your instinct is, I can't, I can't do more. And you take it home and all of a sudden you do more. When you're talking to your spouse and you say, I don't think I can ever, I can't forgive this person at work for what they've done. I'm like, look at this, look at this. And somewhere along the line, all of a sudden, you find the space to go beyond a forgiveness limit that you didn't think could exist. If you ever tried to go on a diet or change health routines and you have ever tried that on your own, you know it's a big struggle, but you know if you can do it with other people, you're like, I can never. For, for me, at Christmas time, the coated crackers are a big deal, right? We're coming into that season of, you know, Ritz crackers, peanut butter, marshmallow, you know, coated with chocolate, right? That doesn't help me go up the hills fast on a bike, all right? But I can't, I can't, like my limit says, uh, I'm going to have at least a couple of those. But if I'm working on a diet thing or eating thing with my friend, all of a sudden I can stop where normally I won't stop because friends will help us realize what our true limits are, right? And it's the same. Here's what it is, church. It's the same for our faith. It's the same principle for our faith. There, there are certain limits that we think by default, exist on our faith. I can only trust this far. I can only believe this far. No, I, I've seen that too much in human behavior. I can only trust in this. this. Now, I can't go further than this. I mean, I'm, I'm going as far as I can. I give grace upon grace, but I'm not going to do that five times. I mean, I'll do it three or four, and that's my limit that I've set. I can't forgive anymore. I can't hope anymore. I can't see a future that's any different anymore. Like, this is the limit of where my faith stops. Like, I'm doing the best I can, but it stops here. And I think in the early church, when they were trying to figure out as a church, how can we be the church? In this series, we're calling it Lost Art of Friendship. How can we be the church under duress when the church faces stress and struggle externally and internally? Come on, what is the quality and characteristics of the friendships that we share in the church? The author to the book of Hebrews wrote, he wrote this, he said, what I want you to do, church, is to spur one another on. I want you to spur one another on. I want you to get in the lives of one another. And when you think you hit that limit, I want you to know that you need to be there for one another because you will do more together than you will ever be able to do on your own. That idea is what I want to dive into with you this morning. I alluded to it. It's in the book of Hebrews. So if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. There's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. I invite you to turn to Hebrews. I want to look at this concept with you, church, and invite you to see this idea of, of limits and spurring and pushing one another to go beyond what we think we can ever do on our own. Uh, the book of Hebrews is where I'm going to be. Hebrews is in the last, like the two, two-thirds of your Bible, um, we don't know who in the world wrote the book of Hebrews, but right now I'm going to say it doesn't necessarily matter. We're, we're going to jump into Hebrews. Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 10 is where I'm going to be uh, this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we're beginning at verse 19 this morning. I'm going to read a couple verses and then um, 
comment on them and then read a few more. I want to set the backdrop for this idea of spurring one another on by reading the background, and because you can't, we can't understand how the church is to spur one another on without understanding the context for it in the way that it's set up in chapter 10, verse 19. So look there with me. Um, the author's writing says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, comma, I'm stopping. Going to come back right there. I know I'm stopping in the middle of a thought. 19 to 21. Look at this with me again. Look at verse 19. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. This is where the author begins. He's saying, you have, church, you now can enter into a place. And by the way, the book of Hebrews um, takes Old Testament allusions and metaphors and tries to bring them into the new with who Jesus is, and they compare who Jesus is to the Old Testament ritual of the nation of Israel and how the Old Testament nation of Israel worshiped God through a temple system. The, the author of Hebrews says, since you understand that, and as Jews, they understood that in the time, let me put that into different terms and help you see who Jesus is in light of how you used to approach God. And so in the Old Testament nation of Israel, there was a place called the holy place, the most holy place. This was the place where God inhabited. Like if you could find that place, by the way, if you could find that place of, of peace and comfort and hope and joy and life and all the struggles and stress of life is resolved in that place of being with God. Have you ever wanted to feel that place? Have you ever wanted to be that close to God? To know that he is real, he is in control, and he is indeed king and Lord. That is the space of the most holy place in the nation of Israel. This is where God resides here. And so now the author of Hebrews is saying to the church, church, you now, you have confidence to enter the most holy place. This is brand new. No one had confidence to enter the most holy place in the Old Testament nation of Israel. People were afraid of it. Like as a regular person, I would never be able to have access to that space. Only the, the priest and then only the high priest after being cleansed and cleaned, and even when they would wash their hands, they'd have to allow the water to drip down off their elbows rather than holding them down, lest a speck of dirt get back on their hand after they've washed it and the water drains this way instead of this way. So we're talking a full-on cleansing of everything, and only one time a year could the high priest come into the most holy place where the presence of God is among the people. And in that space, if there was something in the heart that wasn't confessed, we have stories in the Old Testament where they would tie a rope to the, to the foot of the high priest in case you heard a thump. And they fell over and died in the presence of God in that space because of their impurity. You could drag them out. Is that confidence? Tie the rope. Okay, yeah, this might be the last time. Goodbye to the kids. Chill. I mean, you know, like... The author says, you have confidence now to enter the most holy place, to meet with God, to be in the space where God inhabits a presence among his people. You have confidence to enter this space. And he goes on to explain why. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, this is new, this is living, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Again, this most holy place in the temple was separated by a thick and heavy curtain. And if you know the story when Jesus died, by the way, on the cross, one of the things that happened upon his death, when he died and gave up his spirit, when he died, the temple of the curtain was torn in two in that moment. 
symbolizing exactly what is happening, that the, the divide between the, the common man and God himself has just been separated. That through Christ's death, he has torn that curtain into opening up access to the space that otherwise we do not have access to. And that should give us, church, confidence. And confident people act a certain way, don't they? Confident people act differently. Remember years ago, I was told I have a friend who um, used to watch uh, Alex Trebek Jeopardy. Is that right? I, I don't. I'm not judging you if you do, but I, I don't, and that's fine. But um, I think it used to be on at least maybe at 5 o'clock and then 5.30 back-to-back episodes. Okay? So the, the guy, there was a, a married couple who I was friends with, like, the guy got home early enough from work that he watched the 5 o'clock show. Some of you know where this is going. His wife comes home for the 5.30 show, which is the same episode as the 5 o'clock show. She didn't know he got home early, and he's sitting there like, uh, yeah, that's Leonardo da Vinci. That's the 1835, whatever. She's like, what in the world? He's getting all of the questions right. Never has done it before. And she said, what? how did you? And he's just calm, cool, collected, lying, um, <clears throat> confident about every answer because confident people act a certain way. He knew it was coming and he knew the answers. The author of Hebrews says, you have the same confidence. Confident people act a certain way. They act confidently. They know that this is true. It's this background that leads to the idea of spurring one another on. It's the idea that I now know that through a new and living way, I can meet God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So in light of that, he gives us five let us statements. Next verses, verses 22 through 25. He says, let us five different times. Look at verse 22 to see the first one. So in light of that, let us first draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That is weird if you don't know what's going on. Okay? It's just, it's weird without context. If you understand that as Old Testament sacrificial language, I hope it makes sense. They're, they're alluding to a guilt offering or a sin offering used to be done with killing an animal and sprinkling the blood on the altar or washing and cleansing of your body to be cleaned from it. And so this is Old Testament sacrificial language to say that Old Testament idea of sprinkling and altars and sacrificing animals and all that, like all of that, the, the idea has actually been, been done now because our hearts and our conscience have been cleaned because of what Christ has done to die for us. So let us draw near to God. You can see the confidence in their writing with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You are clean. You don't have to worry about this. Verse 23, the second let us. Let us 
Hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Again, confident statement. Don't swerve from that hope. You have to have that confidence that he who promised is indeed faithful. And then the third let us is what I want to talk about this morning a little bit more. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So spurring one another on is in the context of understanding and believing what we believe about the gospel. Spurring one another on is in the context of because this is who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ, we have the ability now and and the opportunity and almost a responsibility with one another to help each other, to spur one another on. The way the New International Version translates this section, by the way, is a little funky, and it doesn't quite capture what's happening in the original language, which is Greek in this space. Rather than the way the NIV will read it, and I think other translations too, will kind of make us think that what the author wants us to consider are ideas or ways of how to spur people on, as if the spurring is what should be considered. Like, think about ways that you can kind of spur one another on. That seems to be the way that we read that in English. What actually he's saying is consider one another that you may spur them on. It's two different things. He's saying consider one another. In consideration, not first of all about how to spur you on, but first of all in consideration of who you are. If you're my child, if you're in my home, I need to consider you, you first. Not how to spur you first, but consider you. If you're in my day as an employee, as a peer, as a professional, if you're in my day, I want to consider you. If you're my spouse, when I wake up, I want to think about, I want to consider you first. Your history, your background, your needs, your emotional situation, your spiritual situation, all impacts how I should spur you on. I don't want to come up with ideas of how to spur first. I want to consider you. And that's the language of the Greek text is consider each other. And in that consideration, yes, consider how to spur, but only consider spurring in light of being sensitive to, aware of, considerate of the people who are in your day, your parents, your brothers and sisters and children, employees, friends at school, etc. So consider the people who walk through your day in church. Who are the people who are believers in Jesus Christ? How can you in that day, where they are, with the struggles they're having, with the hopes they have, and the joy and the vision, whatever they're at, how can you in that space, in consideration of who they are, be someone who pushes them past the limits that they think? When they tell you they've just been dumped, when they tell you their future is unclear, when they tell you of the financial struggles, of the relational, emotional stress, when they tell you of the stressors, how can you push them past that limit to confidence in the presence of the Most Holy God? Consider how to spur. That idea of a spur is kind of like, if you can imagine the old cowboy situation with the boot on and the spur gun, hits the uh, animal on the side to get him going. It is this idea of um, kind of annoying each other in a loving way. Like, like uh, I wish you wouldn't tell me that I should forgive more. Uh, I know, I know, I know I'm supposed to be more gracious. Uh, honestly, when I train with somebody and at that level, like I shared earlier about the bike racing thing, I will tell you there are times I don't want to because I know it will be more painful, right? And I don't want the pain because I know they will push me. So sometimes I just go by myself so I don't have to have the pain. 
But you know this is true. When you go by yourself, you don't grow as much. I don't get as much out of my workout when I'm on my own than I do when I go through the pain of having some loser ride past me on the hill, you know, when I, when I don't need it. But this is the way it is even for us. There are things that we don't want to change about our habits and behaviors. I know it's going to be painful if I meet with you and talk to you and tell you about it because you're going to tell me what I need to do. That's the ugly side of spurring one another on. We have to be open to that as people. To say we are here for one another, to spur one another on past our limits. More gracious than you think you can be. More forgiving than you think you can be. More healing than you think you can be. More leadership than you think you can provide. Your limits aren't what they think they are, not with one another, not with the confidence to enter the most holy place, not with the holy God here, with confidence to enter into that space. It's painful to invite that spurring, that pushing from one another. I have a question of how in the world does one do this? In other words, should you come to me after the service today and say, Tim, in light of this, I just want to tell you what I think you should be doing as a husband right now that you're not... I would encourage you to do that to Kevin, but not to me. <clears throat> Kevin, I'm sorry I'm picking on you today, kind of. Not totally, but no. I love Kevin, by the way, <laughs> which is the only reason why we can talk about this. But here's, here's the deal. Spurring isn't, isn't just a, a one-off, let me walk by you and shoot something at you. The question is, how does spurring actually work? What does this actually mean to do this in the real world? And I think the author gives us a clue in the text. Look what he says next. Verse 24, and let us, I'm going to fill in, let us, oh, excuse me, verse uh, 25, sorry, wrong verse, 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Here's what I think that means. I don't think that means, please make sure that you check the attendance box in the church registry every time to make sure that you get credit with God that you're at church every Sunday. That environment was not happening when the book of Hebrews was written, okay? There was no, please come to church, we're keeping attendance. That wasn't even in the mind of the author. So that's not what's going on. What I think is happening is he's recognizing we need to connect with one another. Please, church, when it gets hard, do not stop meeting with one another. You need to connect with each other. It is going to be hard. You're going to be discouraged enough. You're going to think, I shouldn't come anymore. I shouldn't be connected anymore because people are going to know or I'm going to think or I'm going to worry or I just can't handle it. It's one more thing to do. And I'm going to want to pull away when it's hard. And he's going to say... Don't stop meeting with the people that you actually need to be meeting with. Don't stop connecting with the people that you need to be connected with. That's the worst thing that you can do. Because when you're weary, when you're worn out, you need someone else to tell you, that is not your limit. This is not your future here. You don't know what is yet to come. You need other people around you to say, listen, more can be done because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We have confidence to enter the most holy places. Therefore, in light of that, let us spur one another on. Let us not stop being and meeting together. In light of that, you may or may not have heard of a book called um, Refrigerator Rights. Anyone ever hear of that book, Refrigerator Rights? It's a very interesting concept. The idea of it is simple, and that is there's only a certain number of people in your life who have rights to your refrigerator. How would you feel if I walked into your house and opened up your fridge as we were in the middle of conversation? That might be a little weird. But there's some people you're like, no, I'm not even going to think about it twice if you walk in and open my fridge. And so the question on the refrigerator, refrigerator rights book is the question of who has refrigerator rights to your soul? Who can walk into your life and open the refrigerator of your soul? 
And so here's the things that are going on. Seriously, you have this fatty food in there? Are you kidding me? Where is the kale? Right? Like who has refrigerator rights to open that door of your soul and say there's, there, there's something here that needs to be done? And if nobody has refrigerator rights to your soul, you have to ask the question, can anyone spur me on? Or am I stuck on my own limits and am I ever going to grow in my faith if no one has the right to open that part of my heart and ask me the questions that need to be asked and prompt me and push me past my limits? Who has refrigerator rights to your soul and to your heart? Who can sit and ask you the questions and connect with you at a relational level? And who can you do the same with? This is why we need each other. And this is why the author of Hebrews says, don't stop meeting with each other. Get to know one another. Learn to love one another through all the junk that we have. Because we need each other. Your limits are not what you think they are, but they will become limiting if you don't allow people to spur you on in love toward good deeds. He finishes verse, the end of verse 25. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Five let us's in light of the confidence of what God has done to us through Christ. So what? Let me, let me wrap it up here with these final thoughts. Confident people um, live differently. They just do. People who are confident in what is to come, people who have some truth to rally around, live differently. And the author of Hebrews says, I want you to have confidence all of a sudden, people, church. There's a new thing happening. Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has given you access to know God, to find the place of peace that other people have never had the access to. They've been afraid to. God has been holy and righteous and other and separate. I'm inviting you, church, to know who God is, and I want you to have the confidence you have access, not because you're awesome, but because Christ has died for you and come back to life for you. He has conquered the power of death. We have access to the power and the presence of God. In the light of that, don't stop helping each other. Know what is true when the world is out of control. Don't stop spurring one another on because you, church, need to do that for the sake of the gospel. I need to know you, you need to know me. My limits are always going to be too short in my own mind and in yours too. And I don't want you, I don't want your faith to be stuck. I want your faith to push past what you think your limits are now. Because our world needs this. We need this as a church. In the new year, uh, uh, well... In the new year, I will say, we are working at a church-wide level, at a program level, to try to help us connect easier, as adults in particular. Greg Petersheim is working on that a lot. We're working on that as a staff to provide some systems for greater connection. But you know and I know the program doesn't solve anything. The program is whatever it is. It's a program. It's a system. But underneath that is my heart. Do I want to be known? Do I want to have my soul open? Do I want to give anyone refrigerator rights to my heart? And the reality is you don't need to. You don't need to. But I think you know and, what, and I know that if I don't and if you don't, what's at stake is that I'm going to think for the rest of my life this is as far as I can go. This is as far as I'm going to be able to forgive. This is as far as I'm going to be able to love. This is as far as my leadership will ever take me. This is as far as the gospel impact will ever have on my life. This is as far as the parenting will ever go. This is as far as my worry answers will ever get. You are going to sell yourself short of who you could be through God 
if I don't allow people in to ask me those questions, to push me beyond. And you know it and I know it, that is hard and that is painful. That's why I don't always want to ride with people because it hurts. But when I'm done, and you know this is true too for you, that when you're done, you're better for the pain and you're better for the relationship. And so church, the lost art of friendship is just about how can the church be uniquely the people of God in the space where you are, in your homes, in your businesses, at schools, to love one another, bear one another's burdens, do not judge one another, speak truth to one another, instruct, care for one another, submit to one another today, spur one another on to be the church at home, at school, at work, no matter where you are, having confidence that God, through Jesus Christ, has given us access to see who this God is. I hope this series has been an encouragement to you to see your relationships in this space at GPC and otherwise differently. We're not just gathering for the fun of it, although it's fun. We're not just gathering for the enjoyment of it, although it is enjoyable to see you, be encouraged by you. We're also gathering that we may prompt each other, push each other, spur one another, and invite transformation and change that we can grow to become more and more like Christ. That this community will see who Jesus is and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we are going. I love you guys. You're an encouragement to me. And I hope that this series has been an encouragement to you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time this morning to be together as a church. To stop in your word and see who you are again. What your son Jesus Christ has done for us to give us confidence, and confident people act differently. I pray that you would give us the confidence to spur one another on, to invite people to spur us on, that our set limits will never limit us, that our friendships in this space will spur us on toward love and good deeds because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. Give us the courage, I pray, to consider those in our day, to consider whom we may serve by encouraging and spurring one another on. Help us to see our children in this way. Help us to see our spouses in this way. Help us to see our employees, our employer, our classmates in this way. To consider others we can ask, how can I serve those and encourage those in my day to give them more hope than they have, to give them more faith than they have, to remind them of what is true. At every point in my day when I touch someone, may they see again the hope of God because I'm confident in it. I'm not going to stop connecting and meeting with people. Give us courage and confidence to live out what we know to be true. Father, we love you and we thank you for the time we can share in Jesus' name.